Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I interview the Miami filmmaking team of Tour. They're best known for their film Cocaine Cowboys, about Miami's drug trade in the 1980s. They discussed that film on this podcast two years ago. We joke now that, you know, the first call everybody makes when they get out of prison is to their mother and their second call is to Raconteur. That's producer Alfred Spellman from episode 42. His partner is director Billy Corbin. Their latest film is Screwball, about the Major League Baseball scandal over performance-enhancing drugs that tarnished the reputation of Yankee star Alex Rodriguez and other players. The story has deep ties to their hometown. Miami is where A-Rod grew up and first came to attention as a high school athlete. Miami was also home to the Biogenesis Clinic, whose owner Tony Bosch supplied A-Rod with performance-enhancing drugs. Here's Bosch in the film. My experience uh, with, with Alex, I guess I got to summarize it as he was weird. I remember him having an apartment. The apartment was on the Hudson in New York. The whole entire apartment was white. I'm talking about even the wooden floors. I thought it was just, it was just too white. All the TVs were on and it was basically footage from years ago of himself hitting a home run or hitting the winning RBI. And he used it as motivation and inspiration. Miami is where Bosch's drug practice was exposed by a whistleblower named Porter Fisher. He was a one-time associate of Bosch, but he grew angry when he loaned Bosch $4,000 that went unpaid. So he stole Bosch's records. Let's go inside. I go inside, and I'm like, what the fuck's going on? Somebody's going to kill me now? He's like, what are you doing with this story? And I told him, I said, look, I want my money. And he goes, no, what do you want? And I go, I just want my money back, Pete. I'm asking you one more time, what do you want? I said, I want that motherfucker to pay. I want the motherfucker to pay for stealing from me. He goes, we'll make that happen. We'll make sure he gets, he gets his. But for right now, all you want is your money. I said, I just want my money. He goes, I'll make that happen. But I need those books. The story was first exposed in the Miami New Times by reporter Tim Elfink, who's interviewed in the film. If you can't understand the deal that Porter and Tony Bosch made for $4,000, it's probably because the deal doesn't make any sense. There's a lot of dispute now over whether this $4,000 was an investment in the company, whether it was a loan. I think basically what you had here was a guy in Tony Bosch whose life was already sort of spiraling out of control, who was willing to do anything to get money. I think he probably told Porter anything he needed to tell him to get this money out of his pocket. The story is full of comic characters, like in the Miami crime novels of Elmore Leonard or Carl Hyacin. I sat down with Alfred and Billy during the Miami Film Festival, where Screwball won the Documentary Audience Award. They told me the first person who brought this story to them was Alex Rodriguez. It was 2013. A-Rod was in the middle of arbitrations with Major League Baseball over his potential suspension for drug use. Alfred and Billy were called to lunch with A-Rod at a power broker's restaurant near the University of Miami. Billy sets the scene. We sit down and, and very quickly, just from the whole scene, I got the sense of what this was all about. And so my icebreaker when we sat down was, so who's going to call page six, you or us? And 
some people chuckled. Alex, I don't remember chuckling. At the time, he was in the midst of, you know, he was fighting for his career and a livelihood, so he didn't really seem to have much of a sense of humor. Um, but sure enough, within a, a week or two, it was, in, it was in page six. And I'll tell you that we didn't, we didn't call page six, but it, it was very clear that we were sort of pawns in Alex's PR offensive against Major League Baseball in an attempt to kind of, I don't know what, to intimidate them that he was going to, you know, spill the beans on what I'm not sure. But we sat there with Alex for about an hour, hour and a half. But this is hilarious to me that a guy who is under investigation for drugging baseball decides, you know who I'm going to get? I'm going to get the guys who made cocaine cowboys. (laughs) (laughs) But we sat there for an hour, maybe an hour and a half, um, during which... Alex, sitting as close to me as you are right now, just lied and lied and lied and lied. And I found some of it very compelling. Well, Um, I should jump in now and say, Billy, you've made films about football. I think that's more your sport. Alfred, you're the baseball fan in this team. I'm a degenerate baseball fan. And so we sat there listening to Alex and uh, deny everything and deny having taken steroids and being involved with with Tony Bosch and so Billy and I walked out of there and and uh, I said I said I said I you know I think he's a terribly compelling character I think he made a lot of very compelling points and I you know and, and I I was persuaded on some of it and uh, I didn't buy it at all yeah, it's and, like he uh, lied <laughs> and sure enough a couple weeks later the arbitrator found yeah. him uh, guilty and uh, and Alex was suspended Alfred is the baseball yeah, expert in, 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 in this company. I'm, I'm not. I refer to it as screensaver. I think the players are one collective bargaining agreement away from hitting a ball and then hopping onto a golf cart and riding around the bases. I'm not. I mean, I get it, uh, you know, but... Doesn't have the integrity of the NFL. Well, <laughs> it's, it's, it's no shocker that America's pastime is filled with liars and cheaters. Let's just put it, let's just put it that way. But, uh, but Alfred definitely... Alfred, in fact... And here, this I thought was going to be an interesting kind of icebreaker as well. Um, Alfred pitched against A-Rod in a summer league in high school. We had a, we, I played high school baseball in Dade County. Alex a few years older than me, but I had gone to a summer camp down at Ron Frazier Sports Camp down at, uh, at uh, the University of Miami. And so Alex was one of the older guys who was there. Did you know even then that oh, everybody he was, knew? Was, oh, everybody knew. He yeah. was he was headed out to uh, uh, to he ended up getting drafted in the number one the, the Seattle Mariners. Everybody knew he was he was hot stuff in Dade County, and Dade County is just a breeding ground for for baseball players. The talent that comes out of South Florida, uh, you know, we as Billy said, we fetishized it a bit in the U uh, as far as football talent, but baseball talent in South Florida is is legendary. And Jose Canseco is obviously kind of our biggest. But here's the so hang on, hang on. How'd you do pitching against uh, him? off the top of the wall, a triple, basically. It would have yeah. been a, but Alfred held a disaster. Him. Alfred <laughs> held him to a triple. After their meeting with A-Rod in 2013, they never heard from him again. But around six months later, they heard from Tony Bosch. Tony Bosch is the, uh, the, basically the man at the center of the scandal, uh, the center of the Alex Rodriguez, the biogenesis steroid scandal. He is, uh, went to medical school in Belize, never got licensed in the United States to be a doctor, but ended up running an anti-aging clinic. A series of them. A series of anti-aging clinics uh, where he would treat not only local Miamians, uh, but also had a roster of athletes, professional athletes. Um, 
So we went and met with Tony Bosch. And, and not only professionals, right? That's correct. Well, college and, and high school players as well in South Florida. Uh, several of the players that got taken in the uh, 2005 draft out of the University of Miami were clients of his. In fact, his office was right across the street from the University of Miami baseball field, which is known as Alex Rodriguez Park. Uh, thanks to a, a big donation that, uh, that Alex had made to the baseball program. And so what was it about Tony Bosch that made him the go-to person for, uh, for drugs? And, and, and we, we always refer to this as steroids, but it, was it steroids? Well, that's the thing. There's, so the evolution of, for lack of a better term, for performance-enhancing drugs, which is kind of the catch-all for what we're talking about, uh, steroids had, you know, the typical kind of anabolic gym-roided uh, kind of steroid freak that you, you know, that you stereotypically imagine had kind of transformed by the late zeros into uh, uh, human growth hormone, HGH. So you all of a sudden had, you went from these artificial substances to HGH and testosterone, which really became Tony's main, um, for lack of a better term, his, his go-to substance. Um, and Tony's big theory or that he propounded was this theory of microdosing, where if you took just enough, uh, you would get the benefit of the testosterone boost, but it wouldn't be enough that it would show up in a drug test. And at the right schedule. The and right at the time. right schedule, the right times. So he created various different uh, formulas for how the products. testosterone would be yeah, products. Right. Yeah. Gummies and, you know, creams and things like this where, where he would administer it. So it wasn't them. only that he was supplying stuff. He was coming up with a whole strategy to help players evade detection. Correct. And well, he, he says in the documentary, he, he sees himself as like a scientist and, you know, who behind the scenes that is formulating. He looks at your blood work and he comes up with what he calls a protocol, which is based on what you wish to accomplish, weight loss, um, mitigating effects of age, uh, weight gain, you know, muscle mass, more energy. Um, and so he takes your blood work, your goals, and formulates a protocol with his products and, and a schedule. And if, you're, if you are a professional ball player who needs to evade testing re restrictions and requirements, he, he comes up with a much more strict schedule and when to take them and in what doses. And he just, he'll, he'll I've seen, you know, we've seen his, his books, his uh, composition books that were essentially his medical records. And there are these just meticulous formulas. It looks like the periodic table of elements uh, in there. And, and, and so there's, uh, there's a question of what it is that he understands or doesn't understand about it, but he seems to know what he's talking about. And more importantly, the proof is in the pudding. He had clients who were true believers and who got the results that they wanted from him. So you hear from Tony Bosch. So we go to meet with Tony, and at that point, he had pled guilty and was awaiting sentencing. Uh, he had uh, been charged federally uh, by the DEA for administering these performance-enhancing drugs to high school students. Um, and so at this point, the scandal had essentially ended. It was the last thing was for Tony to be sentenced. And we had met uh, on Saturday, I remember, and he was scheduled to be sentenced on Tuesday. And so the idea was that we would shoot his interviews. He was in a drug rehab at that point uh, for uh, a cocaine uh, problem. He had violated his probation by testing positive for cocaine use. Right. And so uh, he was in a rehab facility. And the idea was that he would be given, or he believed that he would be given 60 days to surrender to the authorities so that he could complete the program. I remember this like it was, he was so confident about it. He's like, this is what's going to happen. So, we had, so, so the, 
the proposal essentially was that we would shoot his interview during the 60-day window before he had to surrender. And then we would go make the documentary. He would go serve his sentence. I, I said, Tony, listen, why don't we wait to see what happens, whether it's 30 days or 45 days or 60 days. This is all the time of freedom you're going to have left between now and you're surrendering, surrendering yourself to, to serve what he assumed would be a two-year or less federal uh, prison sentence. I said, you want to spend some time with your family, getting your affairs in order. I said, let's see how you feel before you dedicate two, three, four days to us to do an interview for a documentary. Let's see what happens with the sentencing and then, and then we'll make a decision about whether or not you want to dedicate the time to that. So it went very well. Tony is a very charismatic, uh, likable individual. Hugely and so, uh, as we see in the film. I, I say that if John Stewart has pioneered the Florida man phrase, Tony is your quintessential Miami man. And uh, so we had, we had a great time. We sat and we chatted and we said, okay, let's see what happens on Tuesday. And sure enough, Tuesday, he goes into federal court for sentencing. And Billy and I are following it on Twitter because it's federal court. There's no cameras in the courtroom. So we're hearing about what's happening. And essentially, the judge says... Instead of two years. Right. He gets four years. And instead of 45 to 60 days to surrender, he has like 45 to 60 minutes to surrender. The judge basically told him, you'll get clean in prison, take off your belt and shoelaces, and you know, you have 45 minutes to turn yourself in. And Tony went away. And that we thought was, for at least four years, going to be the end of that. And yeah, Billy and I shrugged. It's like, oh, well, we got this call from Alex. We got this call from Tony. Yeah. It's kind of funny, too, because like, ordinarily, unless we're doing a Verite project to follow Doc, you know, we, we, t- we tend to come in a little later in the game of these historic events. So as Alfred said, this was the tail end of this scandal. So it seemed a little like a fresh wound, like it hadn't, the story hadn't quite ripened yet. And clearly it hadn't, based on the fact that now this guy was going away for four years. So we kind of shrugged and put it back on the back burner once again. Mm-hmm. And then there was a third person <laughs> who reached out to yeah. you. So Tim Elfrink, um, the journalist from the formerly of the Miami New Times, now at the Washington Post, who broke this story. He, um, he was the, the Woodward and the Bernstein of, of the biogenesis steroid scandal. Um, he had obtained these stolen documents from uh, the whistleblower and, and, and kind of uh, scorned former patient of, uh, of Tony Bosch, Porter Fisher. Tim writes me and says, hey, listen, Porter Fisher has asked for your contact info. He'd like to discuss the possibility of, of doing a documentary. Can I give him your info? I said, sure. And so we met now with Porter. And, and now in less than two years, so basically between 2013 to 2015, th- all three of the main actors or main characters in this international scandal had, independent of each other, reached out to us to discuss the possibility of doing a documentary. And we couldn't help but feel that um, despite my, my, my uh, lack of spirituality, that the universe was trying to, to tell us something and that this was probably a story that we should, we should pursue. Now, ultimately, you had to wait some time for Tony Bosch to get out of prison uh, in order to interview him. Well, what had happened was his sentence had gotten reduced in the, in the meantime. And so once we had this meeting with Porter, we said, well, if we could get Porter and we could interview Tony, then we have a documentary here. And so Billy wrote a letter to Tony, and Tony wrote back saying, actually, I'm getting out in three weeks. I'm going to be at a halfway house in Miami. I'm being released to a halfway house, and I'll be available. I'll be back. I was going to go visit him in Alabama. He was in a federal camp uh, in Alabama where he was um, teaching nutrition uh, (laughs) to his fellow inmates and, in fact, doing protocols 
for the guards and his inmates based on the supplements and vitamins you could obtain at the commissary. And the guys who wanted weight loss or muscle building, he would he was writing protocols and also at the prison. They say they say prison is a criminal college, and so in this case it turned out to be true because one of his uh, one of his other inmates at the at the federal prison camp was Jeffrey Skilling of Enron fame, who apparently was teaching business and some sort of economics courses. And, and Jesse Jackson Jr. was there teaching some sort of political science course. So um, Tony says, let's let's get together and revisit this conversation we had at that point less than two years uh, earlier. And once we met Porter Fisher and Tony Bosch, it became abundantly clear that they were the story, that A-Rod was at best a supporting character in, in this scandal, and that the real conflict and the real drama and the real comedy was born out of the fact that the highest paid baseball player in history, his career was ended over a $4,000 debt between a cocaine-addicted fake doctor and his fake tan-addicted steroid patient. That, like, that was clearly the story that was most compelling, most entertaining, and the one that we ultimately wanted to tell. I always describe this film as being akin to the, the crime comedies of an Elmore Leonard or a Carl Hyacin. And uh, you know, I, I wonder if you see that. Those are two of, of my literary heroes. Uh, growing up on the skewed Florida take of Carl Hyacin has certainly, I think, shaped both mine and Billy's perspective. And his nonfiction, his columns when we were kids, yeah. And uh, you know, we constantly refer to South Florida is a sunny place for shady people. Uh, I frequently tweet articles about schemes and scams out of Miami with the phrase Miami hustles. Hashtag. Hashtag Miami <laughs> hustles, which is essentially uh, kind of a play of the fact that we don't have any industry here. We don't have any factories where people go to work. Everybody kind of subsists from hustle to hustle in a certain way. And the schemes and scams that begin in South Florida end up getting exported nationwide in a, in a, in a lot of instances. We are the Medicare fraud capital of the country. We are the income tax refund uh, fraud capital of the country. We are the PIP insurance fraud capital of the country. So any sort of scheme or scam always seems to emanate or have some sort of South and, Florida connection. And for eight years, the head executive of the state, the governor of the state, Rick Scott, he is the largest Medicare fraudster in the history of the United States of America. So there's just something I, I refer to Miami as America's Casablanca. You know, it, it's just this place where shady people kind of flee to from their home state or home country, usually running away from something. And, and they wind up here and they just kind of bake in the sun together and, and hatch these inane schemes. And of course, another unique part of our culture is the diversity of immigrants that we have here. And so what you wind up having is people who, in fact, some of them were doctors back home, you know, in, in their home country. And, and they hang up a shingle, you know, and, and open shop. And so their fellow countrymen, in many ways, and countrywomen, feel comfortable uh, with them as their, as, their, uh, as their doctor because they were, in fact, in, in some cases, doctors in, in back home in their foreign countries. And in many cases, they're just not. They're just totally, they literally put on a lab coat and a stethoscope and start calling themselves doctors. And, um, you know, there's always news story after news story of like fake doctor found in Hialeah, fake doctor found in Miami, fake doctor. And I'm like, that's not news. News would be real doctor found in Hialeah, real doctor found in, in Miami. You know? In Screwball, Billy and Alfred make a bold choice to cast children for occasional recreations of past events. 
They told me they were inspired by a music video with a notorious B.I.G., in which director Spike Jones cast children to lip-sync the rappers. For Screwball, Billy has children costumed as adults and lip-syncing to visualize the interviews, such as this one with Porter Fisher. The cop shows up. I'm jumping up and down. I'm telling the cop, look, they took everything, they took everything. And he's like, calm down. I'm like, they took evidence. They took state's evidence for a criminal case. He's like, well, for what are you talking about? I go, biogenesis, biogenesis, baseball, Alex. You know, you know what I'm talking about? A-Rod. The effect is like the little rascals meets the thin blue line. We had this challenge here. We do a sports documentary. Formula is pretty simple. Do interviews put sports footage, put game footage in. Because players and coaches are talking about the games, you just cut to the games. Here, in in the whole hour and 40 plus minutes, they mention maybe three baseball games, and that's it. So you, you can have maybe three little clips, but then you've got shenanigans occurring in clinics, in nightclubs, in locker rooms, in sports bars. So what B-roll do you do? So we knew we were going to have to do recrees. And then when you listen to Tony Bosch and Porter Fisher, our two primary interview subjects, speaking, you realize that they tell stories in the most vivid way possible, and they perform dialogue. I said, I want my money. He said, I don't have your money. I said, well, you better get my money. He said, go pound sand. I, and so, but they both did that. They both had that story. It was just natural. Style. It wasn't you were coaching them. Yeah, they just, they just, and I'm like, oh, we could drunk history this. Be, drunk history being the Comedy Central show where they get somebody drunk and they relay a story of history and then they reenact it with actors lip-syncing the dialogue of the drunk person. And so I'm like, they give us all the dialogue. David Sipkin, our, our other partner at Rack and Tour and I, sat and wrote the script, you know, crafted the interviews into the story, wrote this script um, based on the, well, the recrees, all the ones we wanted to do. We didn't get ultimately the budget and the schedule would not allow for all of them, but we wrote our dream script and we said, and I said, but all the actors will be eight, nine, and 10 years old. And we'll put them in with fake, fake facial hair, lab coats, police uniforms, pinstripes for the Yankees, and they'll just be lip-syncing uh, the dialogue from directly from our interview subjects. And it works. It's extraordinary. Uh, uh, I, I mean, you obviously put a lot of effort into something that could have really not worked. Oh, it's like our whole careers, though. It, it could have gone <laughs> sideways in so many different ways. We had a very, very limited budget, a very, very tight schedule. Working with children, and not only working with children, but children who are not act they are lip-syncing. So it's a whole other level of skill that I would assume that most child actors have not had to deal with. Um, and part of this was also born out of kind of the genre of the doc that we felt we were making. We often describe our docs as you know, every documentary has a kind of an analog in, in traditional film genres. So we describe Cocaine Cowboys as a gangster movie. Um, our backyard fighting doc, Dogfight, we had always talked about as like an 80s action movie. Um, Screwball, we knew, was a, was a black comedy, was essentially a Coen Brothers-esque heist movie. Uh, and so the, the device of using children, we kind of steered into the curve on it. But it could have gone totally, totally wrong. <laughs> I should say the title was always Screwball. Our approach was always somewhat farcical. And the tone of the interviews, the, you know, the style of the, the subjects, the way we were going to... We always knew that that was going to be the, the tone. Is it was, we were going to steer towards the comedic um, or the irreverent. And so obviously this uh, seem, uh, seemed to support the story. And, and um, I will say the reputation that I think it's 
perhaps W.C. Fields, who is credited, uh, uh, or perhaps occasionally Hitchcock, you know, don't work with children or animals. Um, I think that's a horrifically backward stereotype. The children, the kids, were a joy. They were absolutely professional. First of all, their minds are like sponges. They memorize dialogue like that. Um, we gave them, of course, the audio to pr practice with at home, and they came prepared. They came ready to go. They were... They're still kids, so it was like we had to be like, okay, there has to be a little lightness and fun on set. But when it came time to work, they were absolutely professional. I, I would, I, I would gladly do it again. I was, I was really impressed with. I was a little fearful, obviously, um, but I was really impressed uh, with their professionalism. Um, as Alfred said, we had a very tight schedule, and so it was all on them. You know, we could. We had a lot of prep. We had professionals behind the camera. We had incredible, um, you know, designers and, and cinematographer and, and uh, uh, you know, production design, art direction. But it all came down to whether or not the kids would perform, and they did. And we've been making docs now for almost 20 years. I can't believe that. For almost 20 years now. And um, this was our first time working. We're shooting recrees, actually, and our first time working, or recrees on the scale with actors, and the first time working with, with kids, as Billy said. And so... Uh, the the challenge of getting that done in a ten day ten and a half day schedule with the budget limitations that we had. Ten and a half days. With, how many different locations? Oh, and it was all on location. Was, the whole thing was shot. It was all on location. I, every day was at least. I think almost every day was two locations. Almost we had a company move almost every we had, day. We, I think. we had one day where there was two or three company moves. Yeah. yeah. So this was this was a real. You know, when we got into making documentaries, one of the reasons we loved making docs when we started was we want to go make. We're interested in the subject. Billy, Dave, and I get the cameras together, get a sound guy, and we go shoot. We go shoot some interviews. We cut a reel. We get some financing together, and we make a documentary. We don't have to deal with agents and managers and actors and all the different layers that you have to do when you're making narratives, which is why we've really enjoyed staying in the doc lane. We've been we've successfully managed to do that. I, and, and we say and we say something, and we just do. We'll do it, or it happens, or I we need to move that. I'll go over and I'll move that. Dave likened directing. Uh, these recrees to uh, being the captain of an aircraft carrier. It's like I say, turn to the right, and 45 minutes later, it's so it took some getting used to the the, the, the speed and the tempo of of the recrees was just different from what we're accustomed to uh, working, you know, on a smaller scale. We had a very large footprint with these recrees on some of our biggest days because we not only shot everything on location, several of them we shot at the actual locations where the real events take place, such as Live Nightclub in the Fountain Blue in Miami Beach, the Sports Bar and Grill, the Ritz Carlton Key Biscayne. So, for example, at the Live Nightclub scene or the Ritz Carlton scene. We fed nearly a hundred people at lunchtime between the actors, the parents, the extras, the crew members. So this is a large footprint uh, for, 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 for us, a scale on which we were, we were not accustomed to. I asked Alfred and Billy if they came away from this story with any notion about how performance-enhancing drugs should be treated in professional sports. It's a difficult question because obviously really what we're talking about here at the end of the day is the influence on kids. And kids who look up to professional athletes as, as heroes or role models, um, that's that's probably the most challenging part of this question, and 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 how to deal with it. Uh, in terms of 
professional sports and performance-enhancing drugs, I tell uh, coffee is a performance-enhancing drug. I can't get any work done in the morning until I have at least two or three uh, cups of coffee. Uh, taking a Tylenol because you have sore muscles is a performance-enhancing drug because it helps you recover quicker. So you're right, the gradient at which we treat what is a performance-enhancing drug and what isn't uh, is, 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 is murky, and it's particularly in baseball, which is a skill sport. Uh, you know, football, basketball, jump higher, run faster, that's, that's great, but are you getting a quicker reaction time? Are you getting that extra 10 feet to turn a fly out into a home run in baseball? You know, Barry Bonds was a fantastic baseball player before the steroids. Uh, you know, you, so I, I don't know that to have that conversation about baseball in particular is fair uh, in comparison to, like I said, other, other sports like uh, track and field. Uh, I think the problem is when you're dealing with more toxic substances and the idea that players who don't want to inject themselves with poison and endanger themselves, endanger perhaps their offspring, um, because there's a lot of very detrimental effects, uh, birth defects, uh, higher rates of autism uh, amongst uh, children of parents who use steroids. So players who want to compete and don't want to do that to themselves feel compelled to do so because they have to go up against players who are, are actually uh, doping. But again, in baseball, it's different. I mean, I remember just playing high school baseball that there was a lot of pressure about chewing tobacco, for example. That chewing tobacco was always part of playing baseball, and there was a lot of peer pressure about that. Um, I, a, a creatine became a big substance in the 90s, I remember. You'd go to GNC, and you'd get the creatine, and it would help you with your weightlifting routine or whatnot. Um, and high school, I was a high school kid. I know plenty of kids were taking were, were taking creatine and were and and were chewing and using chewing tobacco. So, which is not a performance enhancing drug. It was just part of the the culture of baseball. But I would say, while and and I, I want to say very clearly, the, the high school patients that Tony Bosch had, um, that was a crime. And in fact, he went to prison for that. Um, I think it's child abuse. And I always said, where was the Department of Children and Family Services? Because those children did not just come in off the street. They were brought by adults um, uh, to, his, to his clinic. Um, but ultimately, I got to be honest, I don't really give a shit about steroids in baseball. That is really a contractual arrangement between... When people go, They're illegal. it's illegal substances, it's illegal. It's Ill they're banned in the context in, in many cases. In the case of human growth hormone and, and testosterone, when you're getting a legitimate... Uh, prescription from a real doctor, um, that's a contractual arrangement in, 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 in the CBA between the, the players' union and, and, the, and the, the leagues. Uh, for, for me, if you want to, it's not something that we should be making a federal case out of, literally. When you have baseball players dragged in front of Congress, I understand they have a legal monopoly and so Congress exercises a bit more oversight, but that's all dog and pony political nonsense, political theater. Because if you want to talk about a real uh, national uh, health and safety issue. There's one shot in the documentary, and and there wasn't any way to really dive into that or create a pot out of it. But Tony Bosch says very explicitly that he had a hundred cop clients, so he had a hundred police officers from a variety of jurisdictions down here in South Florida who came to his clinic. Shouldn't Congress hold hearings about that? Nobody from any police department that I'm aware of or city commission or mayor or, any, or county commission has asked Tony to follow up on that, on who those people were, taking steroids. And that creates a serious, serious public health and safety issue when there are police officers on steroids. And, and people often ask me, they say, who, who's the new Tony Bosch? There must be somebody new in town where this is going on, right? I said, okay, just drive around like South Miami, 
Hialeah, West Miami. Look specifically at strip malls. Find one that has a sign that says clinic and like mirrored windows that you can't see inside and has multiple cop cars from different departments parked in front of it. That's probably the new Tony Bob. And just to follow up on that, why do you think it's an issue uh, for whether cops are taking something to make their muscles bigger? Well, I think depending on what they're taking. In fact, we just had the former president of the Fraternal Order of Police, the police union in Miami, actually endorsing on video a, quote, weight loss center type of shady sort of gray market anti-aging kind of operation clinic, whatever. I don't even know what to call it. That's why it's so it's so arcane um, and, and shady. Uh, but the reason it's a problem is depending on what they're taking, it dramatically impacts um, their tempers, their anger, their impulses. Um, these are men and women who have to make, as they say, split-second life-or-death decisions. Um, and we've seen a proliferation in Miami-Dade County the last 10, 15, 20 years of use, police use of force, of, um, of on-duty shootings and killings. Um, and I can't imagine that steroids has zero effect on that. And the union has consistently, even more successfully than the baseball Players Association has successfully subverted drug testing, specifically steroid testing, in their contracts with various jurisdictions. But I think that is a serious uh, danger and a serious threat. We, you, we, we, you see police officers who are literally, their biceps and their, their, their you know, chests are ripping out of their uniform. They have, they have necks the size of my waist. Um, and they're, no surprise, some of those officers um, have anger management issues and have a, a, a slew of, of uh, you know, of, of complaints and, and, and conduct uh, issues. The, the information in Screwball has been reported largely in different forms uh, before, but in an entertaining movie, it's going to amplify the, the conversation uh, when it comes out this spring. Do, um, do you think people stand to be embarrassed by this film, whether it's A-Rod or MLB or anyone else? I think the story, as you put it, has largely been reported out. Um, this is certainly a different take on it. Um, I, think, I, I think at the end of the day that this story uh, demonstrates a couple things. Demonstrates the hypocrisy with which this issue has been treated for a very long time. Um, and, you know, I, I hope we'll provoke some sort of conversation about that. I don't want to go too far down in the weeds here because it's not a, we're not talking, it's a, we're not a sports podcast here. But, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the complaints about the steroid era in baseball has to do with the respect for the baseball record book and, and the, the idea that baseball is a sport that's been around for 150 years. We've had records since the late 1800s. And that unlike basketball and football, the rules of baseball have not changed. The bases are still 90 feet apart. The pitcher's mound is still 60 feet, six inches away. Uh, and that the some of the charm of baseball is to be able to compare different eras, to be able to talk about guys, uh, Ted Williams or Mickey Mantle versus today's uh, superstars. And, and so uh, my answer to that has always been, well, you know, we did lower the mound at one point after 1968, the height of the pitcher's mound after the, uh, Bob Gibson had the 1.12 ERA season. There have been minor changes that have been made. There was the dead ball era of the 20s. Um, you know, so should the steroid era My be... God, you are such a degenerate I'm telling you, fan. so this is why I don't <laughs> want to go radi down too far. Radio screensaver, podcast screensaver. So, so, so right should this be treated, I guess, you know, should this era be treated with the hair on fire reaction that it's been treated with in the press? 
And, you know, I think maybe a reevaluation of that might be something that, that would do some good. You're saying there's been many asterisk era, eras Correct. In, in, in the Hall of Fame. Correct. There are, we, we, there are racist and I, women beaters and cheaters we, in the Hall of Fame we, right uh, There's a lot of problems in baseball that have nothing to do with people performing better or playing the game better. Uh, whether that has to do in terms of level of competition, Billy said people are now forced into it. Look, that's that's a totally reasonable argument. That seems to me something the Players Association needs to solve. But hopefully this will kind of recap this latest era of scandal and uh, make us perhaps reevaluate how seriously we should take. I don't care about any of that. Um, I, <laughs> I, to me, you know, this is another in sort of our 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 favorite raconteur genre of pursuit of the American dream by any means necessary. And Miami is a hustle town and hustle economy. And um, ultimately, what I'm now calling the, the new American values. We used to teach our children honesty and integrity, um, to tell the truth, to, to the golden rule, to do unto others as you've had done to you. And now we have new values in America that I think are having a, a toxic effect on potentially multiple generations of children, and we won't know, obviously, until we can study it in, in the future. But the new American values are care only about yourself and lie, cheat, and steal to get ahead for yourself, maybe for your immediate family, but mostly for yourself. Lie, cheat, and steal, and you too could be the highest paid baseball player in history. Lie, cheat, and steal, and you too could, after this botched biogenesis investigation, become the most powerful man, the commissioner, in baseball, like Rob Manfred did. Lie, cheat, and steal, and you two kids can be president of the United States. And those are the new American values. And that, I think, is, is the longer conversation that Screwball uh, elicits. And I think it's, uh, as entertaining as the movie may be, I think it, it signifies something very petrifying uh, uh, involved in, in, in American values. want to thank director Billy Corbin and producer Alfred Spellman for speaking with me. Their film Screwball is coming to theaters and video on demand this spring. If you're in New York City, please join us on Tuesday nights for Pure Nonfiction at IFC Center. Our spring season starts on April 9th and runs through the end of May. Each Tuesday, we show a documentary, followed by a conversation with the filmmakers or other special guests. You can get more information on our website. Thanks to our team, series producer, Hannah Nordenswan, sound recordist, Khalil Bailey, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, who passed away this month at age 82. Our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.